so as you know, I love movies and I love watching them. And so in every movie, it seems, there's always this moment, right? Where depending on what the character does, right? Whatever decision a character makes, where it changes everything for the rest of the movie. Every superhero movie has one. Every movie with a hero, in fact, has one. And every decision that they make within this moment, right, results in this cascading series of events, what I call a domino effect, right? And one domino after another, it falls, right? As if when this decision is made, it's, a, it's a, when this decision is made, I don't know why I picked my water bottle. I didn't even drink it. When a decision is made, it seems like it's almost like the moment it's made, a train leaves the station, and that train is on this track and it's going to go where it needs to go. And there's not really much you can do to stop it. You can't get that moment back. And the once the train leaves the station, your only goal is to somehow is to stop that train from getting to its final destination. That train is never coming back. You can't stop that moment. And of course, as you know, every bad choice that the, decision, that the person makes results in a bad train, per se, leaving the station. Of course, every good choice results in a good train leaving the station. Every Avenger movie known to man has this, and if you've, made, if you've seen the newest one, no spoilers here, there's a moment, one moment that I'm thinking of where this happens, where it just, the train goes in either direction. And in this story that we've been looking at, and for those of you who've been with us, we've been looking at the creation story in Genesis. In this story, there is this moment, and you know what that moment is, where Adam and Eve have a choice to make. And once they make that choice in that moment where the serpent is tempting the woman and the man, the woman and they're the man, Eve and Adam make a decision. They take and eat. And what follows is a series of events, a train that leaves the station, and in my opinion, might be one of the saddest stories known to man. Because what happens afterwards, and you know how it happens. You know what, what happens. They eat the fruit, and then what happens afterwards is the collapsing of God's perfect and good world. And the moment they eat, what I call the sin train, leaves the station, is on a one-way track to ruin just about everything. And right now, even today, here in 2018, we're still feeling the effects. The train is still on the track and has not yet stopped. And if you don't agree, I think you can take one look at our world today and it'll sober your understanding of what's going on in our world. But I... As I study this text, for one, I'm really glad that this story is told. Others maybe say, well, if this story was never in there, maybe we'd be better off. But for me, the fact that the story is told is God's grace towards us. Because this story, as sad as it is, as terrible as it may sound, shows us that this story and what happens to Adam and Eve and all of us afterwards is not simply the way things are supposed to be. God said, eat of this fruit and you shall surely die. And death came knocking. But God tells us in this story today that death is not the way it's supposed to be. The world that was made for us is not the way this is. In Genesis 3, I think it clearly shows us that. Which is then, I think, for all of us, should be a clear sign that we should eliminate two phrases I think we always use in our vocabulary. The phrases are for me, well, it's just the way things are. No, no. It's not the way things are. It's not the way things are meant to be. Or other that we, or worse, we always say, it's just the way that I am. Take it or leave it. No, that's not the way you just are. It's not the way you were meant to be. 
And again, even worse, something that we do all the time is we look at a person and say, that's just the way he or she is going to be, or that's just the way he or she is. Just let it go. And I say, no, that's not the way he or she is supposed to be. Because the way that I am, the way that you are, and the way that the world is are not, and I repeat, are not the way they should be. Because as we've learned over the last four weeks, the world was created to be good. And we were created even better to be very good tof males. We were made for this four-fold relational harmony between us and God, ourselves, one another, and creation, right? And we were given one command to uphold all that. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, of the knowledge of good and evil. Because this knowledge is one we don't need. This knowledge is one that tells us that we can live apart from God, independent from him. We can do our own thing. And as we've learned, this knowledge is the kiss of death that leads us into a place that we don't need. Because though we think we're gaining independence from God, we become dependent upon everything else, as we will see today and beyond. But Adam and Eve, as we know, then listens to this serpent, takes of this fruit, and then eats. And then gets this knowledge that they think that they can live without God. And what's happened after it, the good world that God created unravels, collapses, and begins what many people call an avalanche of sin. That's what I'm calling the sin train. It begins that sin train, a domino effect of sin. And that sin train has left the station and is not returning. And so today... We're going to take a look at what our world looks like, what the sin train has done to our world, and I think what God is doing in the midst of it. Again, the grace that God gives. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 24 today. If you don't have your Bible, oh sorry, verses 8 through 24. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen uh, behind me as always. But Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24, and then we will jump right into our text for today. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. I'm reading in the NASB version, as always. Then they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And then God said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, who gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then Yahweh got to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then he turned to Adam and said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it in all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now the man then called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living and Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and, I, Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, 
knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore Yahweh God sent him and her out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together really quickly and jump right in. Lord, this story, one so familiar to us, oh, how heartbreaking it must be for you to know that this happened. And yet, God, as we will find out soon, you did not stop. You did not pause. You did not sulk, and you did not. But you did something. So help us to hear of what you have done, who you are. And how we might make sense of the lives that we live even today. For you are our God and we are your people. So would you speak through me, O Lord. For I am frail and weak and feeble and yet you are mighty and strong. So may your words ever cascade through this place. Implanting them within our hearts so they may bring life and fruit to us and everyone else around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This scene in this scripture is like a breakup scene in movie. Have you ever seen a family torn apart or if you see relationships that are good and they just get torn right in half and they go in their separate ways? That's what this is. This scene for me is heart-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. It hurts every time I read it. Because the perfect garden that God had made for all, for Adam and Eve to live in becomes in this moment a cemetery, a place where death comes. Where all the four relationships between God and us, us and us, us and others and us in creation break down into nothing. But even in the cemetery, we find grace is present. And not just grace, but grace abundant. And as my professor likes to say, not just grace abundant, but we find that grace is outrunning the avalanche of sin. You see, Adam and Eve, they took this fruit. And when they took the fruit, it set off a train of events, an avalanche of sin. And while the sin train takes off, what we find is that God releases a train of his own. So when they eat of the, tree, or eat of the fruit, a sin train goes, and it leaves the station. And as soon as the sin train leaves the station, so that, that, you're going to hear that phrase uh, again and again, right? And as soon as that train leaves the station, then God, it almost like sets off another train on his own, a train of grace that goes after the avalanche of sin, the sin train, and we'll find out, indeed, in this, what God is doing. And I think if we find what God is doing in this, we will understand our stories much, much better and be able to live them well. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to get a on board, sorry, it's kind of cheesy, I get it. But we're going to get on board both trains and live through the story in both directions and figure out what happens to our lives and what God is up to. Because I think once we find what the sin train is and what the grace train is doing, then we'll be better able to understand what our lives are like. So first, let's get on board the sin train. I know that's a weird phrase, but bear with me here. So the moment the sin train leaves the station, there's a series of domino effects. And here they are. The first domino our relationship with God unravels. Genesis 3.8 says that they heard God walking in the cool of the garden, and then the man and his wife, they hid themselves. The relationship that they have with God has unraveled. Because as you know, we were created to have a loving relationship with God. An intimate, a joyful a gracious, a trusting, a delightful relationship with him, but yet has now become one of fear, shame, suspicion, and guilt. And the thing that I find interesting is that notice, 
God is merely walking throughout the garden. He hasn't said anything yet. And even though he hasn't said anything, they automatically go around hiding. God, I imagine, every morning must have walked around the garden in the cool of the day. Every single day, it's what he did. And every single day, his sound of him walking throughout the garden would have been noticeable and present to Adam and Eve. And yet on this day, rather than the joy that they would have had to find that God was walking around the garden, they hid because they were afraid and they were ashamed. One of my favorite moments throughout each day is when I come home and I walk through that door, and my kids hear that Appa is home, and they scream, Appa! And then they run to me. For some of you that were here at Crawford's Bowl yesterday, when I walked down the stairs, the first time I had seen them yesterday, and they were sitting down in the lobby over here, and all three of them bum-rushed me to get a hug. Every time I walk in, well, almost every time I walk in, this is what I get. But if they had done something bad during the day, and my wife, Christina, can't get them to settle down, she goes, just wait till Appa comes home. And the reaction that I get when I walk in the door is not one of joy, exuberance, and excitement. It's one of death and fear and shame. They hide. I got to go looking for them. And each generation of Adam and Eve's offspring have hidden like they did ever since. And perhaps we don't completely hide. All of you are here, aren't you? You're not completely hiding from God. And many people in the world are in churches today worshiping and whatnot. We don't completely hide, but we do hide behind many things to drown out God. Here are a few of them for you. We hide behind noise. And in today's generation, evermore, behind the TVs, behind the phones, behind the music, behind the earphones, headphones, entertainment, everything. We hide behind the noise to drown out everything around us, including God, don't we? The best thing that you want to do when your parents are being annoying is you put on over-ear headphones that are noise-canceling. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Or we hide behind our busyness, don't we? Busyness can be a good thing, I'm sure. But sometimes you keep busy just so you don't have to deal with people. And you keep busy just so you don't have to deal with God. I tell our teachers this. You can get busy and hide behind the busyness of serving Or many of us in the world, unfortunately, hide behind substances, substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, and everything in between. You drown out the world to escape God under the influence of these substances that are good for you. We also hide by not accepting the consequences of our choices. I find it very interesting that the first thing Adam does when God confronts Adam is he shifts the blame to Eve. In fact, they all do it, don't they? Adam goes, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the woman goes, well, the serpent deceived me and therefore I ate it. And Adam goes even one further and says, you, the woman you gave me, God, gave me this fruit. A.K.A. that if you had not given me this woman, I would not be in this predicament. Thanks, God, for nothing. Blame shifting is probably the quickest way we hide. Away from our God and away from one another. So our relationship with God has unraveled. The second domino then is our relationship with ourself unraveled. As Adam and Eve are separating from God, it carries into their understanding of themselves, where their true self unravels into something way beneath them. In verse 7, we didn't read it today, but in verse 7, you know, the moment they eat of the tree, they realize that they were naked and then they made clothes out of fig leaves for themselves. Remember, when they were first created, they were naked and not ashamed. And we had understood that this phrase in Hebrew means that they were totally fine with who they were. No masks, 
No cover-ups. They were fine, exactly as they were. The English phrase is to be comfortable in your own skin as you are. And here were two people who were exactly fine, who had no insecurities about their physical image, no insecurity about, about anything, height, intelligent, nothing. They were completely uh, 100% secure about who they were. And yet the moment they ate, all of a sudden they realized that they were naked and ashamed. And they just barely, just laughably tried to make some loincloths out of fig leaves, which isn't going to do anything. That's why God asked, wait, who told you you were naked? Eating of the tree makes us independent from God, yes? Separated from him is the independence. But then we're not able to know God the way he's supposed to be known. And we're not able to know ourselves the way that we're supposed to be known as a result. In the moment they ate of it, the tov me'od human beings became something utterly different. Way less than they were created to be. And only God, no psychologist, no pastor, no one on the face of the planet can ever heal us and make us whole into the persons we want to be unless we are one with him and one with ourselves. Done. This self-security. It's why the world has self-confidence uh, issues. It's where it started. The third domino then. Our relationship with others now has unraveled. Verse 12, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. This is one of the saddest statements in all of the chapter. Do you remember who the woman was supposed to be if you were here, if you've been here? What is the woman created to be? Who remembers the word? The Ezer, the helper, the one who comes to rescue, a title given only to God and then the woman in the beginning. And yet this Ezer, this amazing rescuer now is the one who's at fault apparently according to Adam for the thing that he did. Immediately Adam throws her right under the bus. Instead of accepting responsibility for eating, confessing his own guilt and what he'd done, Adam quickly and without hesitation, almost instinctually it seems, he projects everything onto Eve. And every single one of their offerings ever since have done that. I want to ask you to raise your hands because every one of us should. But it's like second nature to us, shifting the blame to somebody else, isn't it? Whenever things go wrong in our lives... We're so quick to blame who? Your parents, maybe, your culture, your others, other people in your life, environment. Some people, some people even apparently now, uh, what's it called, uh, blame their genes. Apparently there's this thing called a sin gene, which is ridiculous. I've heard other people say, oh, it's a generational sin in my life. It's a biblical way of saying it's not my fault. Oh, because my father made this mistake, I am now, it's his fault. If he hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done it. It's called generational sin. It's ridiculous. You are responsible for your own sin. We always choose to do the things we do and always say the things we say. That's our choice, not anyone else's. And it's heartbreaking. Because if you remember why Eve was created in the first place, it's because Adam on his own was simply not good enough. A perfect world was not good enough until Eve showed up. And yet somehow the man who, when he first laid eyes on his beautiful Eve, busted out in a love song that's better than anything I've heard ever. All of a sudden, the moment he eats the fruit, he throws her straight under the bus and say, it's her fault and your fault, God, not mine. I'm not, no. 
a relationship meant to be one of love, mutuality, and care has now turned into competition and desire. That's why in verse 16 it says, your desire, God's talking to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. We see this desire and rule motif again in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Pastor Goose is going to touch on it next week. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Desire and rule. Our relationships in our world and our lives have become this desire and rule, hasn't it? Every relationship, everywhere it seems, this is what it comes down to. Our desire to rule over them. Competition and domination is the way most relationships are now based. And God is saying that's not the way it was supposed to be. Oh, how his heart must break. Domino number four. Then our relationship with our world, the earth, and creation unravels. I know this, not personally, because I'm not the one having kids, but my wife knows I've seen. There's now child, there's pain in childbearing. It's not the way it was meant to be, I hope you know. The ground that we walk on is now cursed. God says there will be thorns and thistles. In pain we shall eat of the ground. Out of the ground from which he came we will return. How sad is it that one of the things that God loves to do at his core most, which is to create and to multiply. You know that? Did you know that about God? That he loves to create. He loves to multiply. He loves to make new things and make them wonderful and amazing That now even the process of multiplying, the very first thing he tells us to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply when he looks at the women and the man, that that now has become a painful thing. Ask most mothers, and the reason why they don't have more than one, two, or three children is because it's just too painful to go through pregnancy and the childbirth. And I, trust me, I'm not, I I get it. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. I always think of uh, Christina after Mason, she had a, a uh, pretty rough birth. It took 30-some hours, and she had a little bit of what they call post, uh, it's almost like PTSD, post-birth traumatic syndrome. And mothers go through this thing where they can't look at their babies and love them because they had so much pain in bringing them into the world. That's not the way it was supposed to be, I hope you know. This, all this that we're talking about is what's called the avalanche of sin, or what I'm calling the sin train. And everywhere you look, we're feeling the effects of it every single day of our lives. But alas, though the sin train is real and it sucks, God in that moment, because he is God, Yahweh God, sets off what I call a grace train. And that grace train keeps pace with this avalanche, the sin train, and eventually, as we will see, is one step ahead. So let's get on board then now, the grace train, and see what God does. Grace in four levels, going in reverse order. The first, there is now grace in our relationship with the earth. Although the earth no longer works the way it's supposed to, it's caused us a pain when we eat of it. The fact still remains, it produces food, and oh, what abundant food it produces. Thanks be to the Lord. As all of you know, for those of you who know me, I love food, and I love cooking with it, and thanks be to God that God still produces amazing food for me and all of us to cook with. Every farm in a fallen world, which is a fallen farm, somehow still produces good food. That's grace. Again, my professor, he's so cute when he says this, but he says, that's why every time we eat in a fallen world, we say grace, because it's God's grace that gives us the food. 
we must remember that God did not have to allow this earth to keep producing fruit the way that it does. God did not have to allow the earth to have its creative abilities and keep them once he banished us from the garden because it was a cemetery to become a death place. But indeed, God still allows us to produce food and eat of it. That's grace. And if you don't know this, I'm going to use a Lion King reference, and again, you won't know. But when Mufasa is king, the pride land is full of animals and fruit and all this stuff. But the moment Scar becomes king, what happens? Everything dies. The fact that we still produce is a grace. Everything was supposed to become the elephant graveyard. Go watch Lion King. Please do me a favor. But it isn't because God is gracious. Grace number two then. Grace is, there's grace in our relationship with others. Although in the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the relationship between a man and his wife broke. Somehow it still works, thanks be to God. Somehow God has allowed my relationship with my wife still to flourish and to work. Somehow God has uh, established uh, Goose and Julie's uh, relationship to work and Gino and Carol's over there and so many on behalf all of your parents, hopefully, that that indeed it makes it work. There's a way that it's supposed to work. Anytime two people get along for me, that's grace because we're not supposed to, not because of sin. Anytime there's love, there's service and care, it's a sign of grace. I think it's why the world, no matter what faith, you know, affiliation you are, no matter what religion you belong to, everyone in the world still loves Mother Teresa because she's an amazing person. Everyone still loves. Any sane person loves Martin Luther King Jr. Why? Because he was a good person. He loved others. He cared for others. So did she. This whole world isn't completely broken, and that's grace. And notice, it's after all this that the woman gets her name. In verse 20, Adam names her Eve, which means, the word Eve literally means in Hebrew, living, because she's the mother of all living, Adam says. I find it crazy that Adam somehow delights in Eve, and Eve delights in women. If I was Eve, I'd be like, F you, bro. Thanks for throwing me under the bus the moment you got a chance. And what, I'm supposed to be good to you? Get out of here. But grace still exists. Because she still then takes Adam and continually they're able to live in the way that maybe a little proof, a little, little, little bit of taste of the way that they're supposed to. The fact that I have three children and I'm happily married, I just got past nine years, thanks be to God, is living proof that there is grace in the world. A theologian, you don't need to clap, a theologian once said, every time a child is born, it is a sign that God has not yet given up on the world grace the third then grace grace in our relationships with ourselves with self although humanity now is naked and ashamed barely able to cover themselves did you notice what god does this point always gets overlooked in the story god clothes them the best that Adam and Eve in their humanity could come up with was fig leaves. Barely there, barely passable as some sort of covering. But God had a better idea and he does a much better job. Thanks be to God again that what we could not do for ourselves, he does a much better job. It teaches us that humanity, we alone cannot cover our shame. I hope you know. You and I alone cannot cover our guilt. You and I alone cannot cover our sin. But God allows us some safety by giving us clothing to cover their nakedness and their shame. God sends them out of the garden with covering to cover their nakedness and shame. Could you imagine what it would have been like if Adam and Eve had to leave and all they had was little fig leaf coverings for themselves? 
perpetually they would have walked around like this because they would never had any way to cover their shame. That's grace. And then the fourth grace, last, most important, is grace in our relationship with God. And this is where you see grace most. When Adam and Eve hide, the question that God asks is, Adam, where are you? Now, you might be like, Pastor, what's the big deal? To me, it's a really funny question. I don't know if you know. We always forget when we read the Bible that God is God. It's a stupid question for God, no? God knows where they are. Come on, he's God. It's like when my kids hide. They hide underneath the blankets every night, like as if I don't know they're there. And then I got to do this funny act where I'll be like, oh, where's my children? I always be like, Christina, oh my goodness, we lost our sons. Where'd they go? And they're like, (laughs) underneath the blankets. And then if they don't squirm, I have to annoyingly in some way keep playing the game, hoping that they squirm and I can see, oh, I saw your toes, there you are, and then uncover them. And of course, the other one thinks he's not cool because he's like, you know, he's shaking underneath his blanket. I can't see them because they're hiding. God knows where they are, but he asks them, where are you? I play the game with my children. He plays the game with us. Why? Because he wants the relationship to continue. God is not going to give up on Adam, even though Adam and Eve brought death into the world. The question of where are you is meant to draw us back into love with him. God knows full well that Adam and Eve, they're shamed, they're afraid, they're guilt-ridden, they're embarrassed. And God knows that somehow he's got to draw them out of this shame and then draw them into him. And so God had a lot of choices in this moment. He could have done a lot of different things, but rather than chasing them out of their hiding, chasing us out of our guilt, he draws them in. He draws us in. Can you imagine how differently that situation would have gone if God had said to Adam, Adam, I know you're hiding. Stop being stupid. I see you. Get out. Come here. We need to talk. Perhaps Adam and Eve, if they were like my children, would have been like, shh. But we know but God knew and he doesn't ask that question he doesn't say it like that why because all that would do is drive Adam and Eve further into their hiding if God had done this they would have just run away even more God also could have said something different. God could have said, Adam, Eve, I love you. I love you. I care for you. Just come on out. But let's be real. Keep it 100. That wouldn't have gotten them to come out, would it? Because they wouldn't have believed those words. I tried this with my kids. They make stupid mistakes, and I tell them I love them, and the only look on their face is, oh, my God, he hates me. They don't believe those words. Why? Because the guilt and the shame makes you think, no matter what the words are, are, that they indeed, that other person hates you, that other person is upset with you. Guilt drowns out truth and love and trust. It always does. And so God asks the question, where are you? Because that question brings the defenses down. The walls get torn down by that question. Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you. Won't you come and be with me? It's why Jesus oftentimes answers with questions. It's why I answer many of your stuff with questions. Breaks the walls down. And then again, 
after asking such a gracious question to them, the moment they come out, God then clothes them, covering their shame and their fear. He doesn't yank them out. He doesn't make them stand in their nakedness and say, okay, report to me what you've done. No, God makes them clothes first before anything. Why? Because he knows our hearts. And he knows at this point now, Adam and Eve, the only thing on their heart is to hide. That's their number one goal is they got to hide. They got to sh- cover their nakedness and their shame just so that they might be able to stand and have even maybe, even maybe, just maybe look at God. That's why Isaiah 61.10 says, He has clothed us with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then, more grace. After this, God then covers the way to the tree of life. Now, you might be like, wait, 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 wait. Why is that a good thing? It's like when my kids get in trouble and I tell them they can't do these things. They're like, wait, why is that a good thing? Well, think about it. If Adam and Eve, in their sin, would have been able to eat from the tree of life, then what would have happened? They would have been able to live forever. And you might be like, wait, that's amazing. No, it ain't. Because all it would have meant was an eternal life separated from God. They would have had lived forever and ever. They would have never died. And they would have just always been separated from God. That's not a thing. That's the worst thing that could have happened to them. The greatest grace in this situation was that God did not say to them, okay, you can live forever like this. I'm done with you. That's God saying, and then turning his back and walking the other way. He's saying, no, you can't eat of this tree yet because your life is not the way it's supposed to be. The real life we were meant for is one of grace, trust, and love. And that's not the life they were living. And so God says, you cannot eat of this tree. I will not allow you to be eternally separated from me because that might have broken God's heart right then and there. why I think Paul says to live is Christ but to die is gain because once this sinful life ends a life of perfection for eternity begins now the whole series has always been for the entire time we've been going through Genesis we've always said that this story here Genesis 1 through 11 makes sense of our story and this is not any different Because if you look at the story, I think all of it points to Jesus and the cross. So let's take a look. First, the clothes. Have you ever wondered, where does God get the clothes? It's not a trick question. God gets the clothes from an animal. And not just any animal, a dead animal. And not just any dead animal, a dead animal that God had to kill animal. So far, there's no death in the picture. But the moment Adam and Eve eat of the tree, God has to go to cover their shame. God has to take one of his beautiful animals that he created, has to slaughter them, take their skin, make clothes, and then give it to the people. Out of death, God ordains the covering of our shame. Shed blood is always what covers, atones for our shame. Always has. And we see it, of course, in the cross, don't we? 
Just like God had to kill the animal to give Adam and Eve their clothes, God had to kill his own son to give us our salvation. That's why I always say, love always requires a death of some sort. You cannot love without having pain to yourself. It's just not possible. And then, God says this very interesting phrase that I love. He says, I will put enmity, he's talking to the woman and the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and between the woman. And between your seed and her seed, offspring, right? And then he, the offspring or the seed of the serpent, will bruise the seed Oh, the bruise the head of the seed of the woman, and then the seed of the woman will indeed. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ooh, God, ooh, God, let me go. The seed of the serpent. I'm sorry. The, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Right. This is a promise that God makes once they eat of the fruit, and this, in my opinion, is the greatest grace we so far see. God is promising something very simple. He's saying this, look, one day, he's saying to the woman and the serpent, one day, woman, your child, a seed of yours, someone from your generational line, which represents all of humanity, is going to come and deal a blow to the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will also come and deal a blow to the seed of the woman. Now, I'm not a huge gamer, but I'll just use one example. If you've ever played uh, first-person shoot-em-up games, I don't recommend it, but we'll just use it for here. The only thing that I know is, again, I suck at all those games, but the only thing I know is that the thing that you're aiming for is a headshot, isn't it? Like, headshots are where it's at. Why? Because they person immediately die. You shoot them in the foot, they get hurt. They limp around. You shoot them in the shoulder, same thing. But a headshot, instant kill. No, that's what you want. Now, this promise is akin to this. Bear with me. And this promise holds this whole thing together. Grace holds it all thing together. And the question now is then who's the seed of Eve and who's the seed of the serpent? Well, the seed of the serpent is just a serpent. It's the enemy. It's the devil. But the seed of Eve, you probably know, it's Jesus, don't we? If you listen to Isaiah 9, it says that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Why? For us, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. And the increase of the government and the peace where there will be no end. Galatians 4.4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You know this story. There's a baby that's born in a manger in Bethlehem. And as soon as he comes, Herod, the enemy, the serpent, tries to kill him. So he's got to flee out to Egypt just so that he doesn't die. And then as soon as he comes back and he lives and he starts doing this thing, then the religious elite, the politics, the government, and everything else tries to kill him too. And on the cross, he then goes... And on the cross, the serpent thinks that he finally got what he's looking for. He says, ha, bruise the heel, I'll show you heel, God. No, I got him. That's a headshot. You got it wrong. The serpent thinks on the cross that he's done the final blow, that God has been defeated. It's done. It's over. Game, set, match. But the serpent has no idea who he's messing with. Because we've said over and over, the moment death stung Jesus, death stung itself to death. Now there's this movie I've mentioned a couple times called The Passion of the Christ. If you watch this movie, creepily there's this character. He's bald, he's got weird teeth, he's got this look on his eyes, he looks very snaky. If you don't know what it is, go YouTube it. 
And the entire movie, he's kind of like, again, snaking around the whole time. He represents the enemy, I hope you know. It's what Mel Gibson's trying to do. And if you watch the scene in the crucifixion, watch, go watch it again. Jesus gets crucified, and then he gets stabbed, and all this stuff kind of happens. And the moment that happens, and the, the, the curtain is torn, and then there's a scene in which this devil, snaky figure starts writhing in pain and crying out because his life is coming before him. Because in that moment, though he thought he got Jesus, all he ever did was bruise Jesus on the heel, and he got a headshot because that was it. It was done. The serpent thought he won, but we know Christ rises again. And again, I told you, in that moment, what happens? The curtain, the curtain that guards the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells, that curtain tears in half. You know what's written? You know what's embroidered embroidered on that curtain? It's the cherubim. Pictures of the cherubim that God placed to guard the tree of life. It gets torn in half, and the way to the tree of life is now opened because of Jesus. Why? Because you and I were meant to live with God forever. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be. And three days later, you know the story. The women go to the cemetery, to the stone, to the tomb. And what do they think they see? They think they see a gardener, don't they? And guess what? They're right. Because they say Jesus, the gardener, not just a gardener. He's not the gardener of the cemetery. No, he's the garden in the cemetery. Come to call us home. The same God who walked in the cool of the day in the garden is now sitting in the garden that's become a cemetery to welcome you back home. This is grace outrunning the centuries. In Romans 5, 20 through 21, this is what Paul says, and we finish here. He says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that That as sin reigned in death, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The enemy can try to kill us, but God says no. There's brokenness all over the world. Everywhere you look, it's everywhere. The sin train is still ongoing. But friends, in and through it, all God's grace is always outrunning and outflanking one step ahead of it so that you and I can have life. That's your story. This, the world you live in, is not the way it's supposed to be. We're meant for much more than this. Will you live in the grace that God gives? Will you see the seed of the woman who says, no matter what you do, no matter how you live, I have a way to be bigger and greater than anything that you might or could possibly imagine doing because I am God and you are mine.
of friends, brothers and sisters, won't you take that call and live with him? Get on board the grace train. Hop off the sin train and ask God to help you to live in the way that you were meant to live. As I invite the praise team, I'm just going to give you a moment to pray. And we're going to pray through a few little things. I don't know what your life is like right now. Well, maybe I do. But most of you, I don't. I think some of you, for some of you, hopefully you're riding on the grace train. And if you are, praise be to the Lord. And if you are on that train, I pray that you would take time for people who are not yet on this train, who yet not know the grace of God. For those of you, your job is to realize that people who are the way that they are, who might suck and are crappy to you, are not crappy because they just want to be, aren't crappy because it's just the way that they are. No, your job is to pray for them that God's grace would outflank the sin train and get them on board where they're supposed to be. Some of you, I'm sure, just don't give a crap about anything right now. And in doing so, you're heavily flanked on the sin train. You don't care about this. You don't care about God. You don't care about others. All you care about is me. And life is just this thing that revolves around this, that. You've got front row seats to the sin train. I hope you pray. And you realize this is not the way life is supposed to be. And for others of you, they're probably in a third category. Where life is so miserable for things that you cannot control, you feel like the whole world is collapsing around you. For you, your job, my prayer for you is that you would realize that God's grace is way bigger than anything that the world can throw at you. That you are more precious and more valuable, more worthy in God's eyes than anything that is going around in the world. So wherever you're at, brothers and sisters, will you take a moment and pray? For you and no one else. Because make no mistake, we are not meant, we were not created to live the way that we mostly do these days. We were not created to hide. We were not created to shift blame. We were not created to throw other people under the bus. We were not created to be clothed in such a way where we are naked and ashamed. We were not created this way. We were created for so much more than this. And if you are not willing to grab a hold, get a ticket and get on the grace train, then I hope and I pray that you would. Because God, with every fiber of his being, every drop of his blood, wishes that you were with him and not where you are. So you take some time, wherever you find yourself, to pray. To cry out to God and say, God, I need you. I am tov meod in your eyes. Help me to believe and see. I am not what everyone tells me that I am. You tell me that I'm worthy, that I'm loved. The world is not this way, God, because you tell me that it's not supposed to be this way, that you have something better for us. You've meant us for something greater than this, so pray. Ask God to come. Reach out to him. Pray.
And as you pray, I pray that God's grace would ever abound in you. So when we sing these songs of grace and victory, that you would sing them with every fiber of your being. So take some time, reflect. And when the praise team is ready, they'll lead us in response. And I hope you will respond with everything 